0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called "A House Divided." It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 10th, 2018. I'll be honest. I find this week's gospel reading troubling and hard. It cuts close to home and ways that hurt. It raises questions I don't know how to face courageously. If you've read my previous essays, you know that I grew up in a tight-knit immigrant family. My parents left their native India when I was two months old and raised me in a thickly South Asian community here in the U.S. Like many second-generation Americans, I've spent most of my life agonizing over my identity. Who am I? What am I, American or Indian? Who are my people? To whom do I belong? Where should my cultural loyalties lie? It's with this background that I come to the week's lectionary reading, And find a Jesus who scandalizes his hometown by accusing his religious leaders of blasphemy and publicly disowning his mother and siblings. Let's get the obvious over with first. If you need Jesus to be soft and cuddly, this lection is not for you. If you need Jesus to affirm your sense of order, your personal and social boundaries, and your spiritual comfort zones, this lection is not for you. If you need Jesus to make your life decisions less painful and costly, this lection is definitely not for you. The setting of the text is Nazareth. Jesus has returned home after inaugurating his ministry, and it's clear from the size and frenzy of the crowds pressing against him that his reputation has preceded him. After all, much has happened since the carpenter's son first left home. The heavens have opened at his baptism. He has survived a 40-day fast in the wilderness. He has driven out unclean spirits, healed the sick, eaten with sinners, chosen his disciples, and declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Through these and other acts, he has mesmerized every crowd he's come into contact with, stirring up such hope, excitement, and yearning in people's hearts that they just can't leave him alone. So they follow him to Nazareth and pour into the house where he's staying, pressing in so tight that Jesus can't even lift his hand to his mouth to feed himself. Needless to say, this state of affairs is more than enough to alarm both his family and the religious authorities. Jesus' mother and siblings arrive on the scene first, intending to stage an intervention. Mortified by the neighborhood rumors that Jesus has lost his mind, Mary and her other children stand outside the jam-packed house and call for Jesus, hoping in vain to restrain him. The scribes show up shortly thereafter, having come down from Jerusalem to investigate this new teacher, and declare that Jesus is evil and a threat, not a benign healer empowered by God but a fiend possessed by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. It's too easy for us, having the benefit of historical hindsight, to write off these people who accuse Jesus of insanity and demon possession, as if discernment is a neat and tidy process for us moderns, as if we never mistake evil for good, or better for best, or bravery for insanity. The fact is, neither Jesus' family nor the scribes from Jerusalem are evil or ill-intentioned. They are earnest people dedicated to maintaining stability during a fraught time. Jesus' family desires order and peace in the domestic sphere, and the scribes desire order and peace in the religious sphere. Don't we all? They're not out to thwart God, they just want to keep things respectable. Which is why I think I find Jesus' behavior in this lecture so upsetting. The Jesus of Mark chapter 3 is harsh, austere, and impatient. Instead of responding compassionately to the scribes, he shreds their arguments with clever parables and accuses them of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, an unforgivable sin. Instead of going out to greet and reassure his mother and siblings, he rejects their interventions, renounces their claims on his life, and trades them in for a new family of his own making. What is Jesus doing? And why does he do it so impolitely? I don't know for sure, but I wonder if he's navigating through the same questions I listed at the start of this essay, the same questions that have caused me such pain and grief as a daughter of immigrants in a bifurcated world. Who am I? What am I? Who are my people? To whom do I belong? Where should my loyalties lie? Redefining one's identity, whether in a family or in a religious institution, is a provocative act, and it almost always comes at a price. Some of the most searing and traumatic encounters I've had with my family have been around cultural and religious identity, around my longing to share with them the fullness of who I am, both American and Indian, both Christian and progressive, both feminine and feminist. In this lecture, Jesus proves himself even more provocative and pays a far higher price than I can even imagine. Can you picture the scene? Outside the house stand the insiders, the family, the religious folk, the pious, the careful. They think they have God pinned down. They know what the Holy Spirit is supposed to look like and Jesus doesn't fit the bill. Inside the house sit the outsiders. The misfits, the rejects, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. They're not interested in dogma or piety, they just need love, and they seem to have found it in a man who heals the sick and feeds the hungry. And in the midst of them, smack in the center of the sick, the insane, the deviant, the hungry, the unorthodox, and the unwashed, there sits Jesus saying, This, this is my family. If we're not shaken, then we're not paying attention. Jesus isn't calling for surface change here. He's dividing the house. He's burning things down. He's going for the deep, the institutional and the systemic. Outside is in and inside is out, and the people least likely to get it are the ones who consider themselves the most knowledgeable, the most churchy, and the most spiritually stable. I don't know about you, but when I think about who the blasphemers are in this story, I tremble. It is entirely possible, who knew, to look God's wild, disturbing, unpredictable spirit in the eye and call that loving spirit insane or demon-possessed. Let's be careful at all times with our certainties. As I wrote at the beginning, I find this Gospel reading very difficult. When I think of Mary standing outside that house waiting for her son, my heart breaks. I think of my own mother, of the many times I have kept her waiting. I think of my son and of how devastated I would feel if he renounced me. It helps to imagine that this moment of breakage and rupture cost Jesus something dear. He knows he is Mary's son. He knows the agony of letting her go. But he knows that he's God's son first, and that his divine identity must trump all others. Still, I hope that it's with a secret lump in his throat that he bids his family goodbye. At the same time, I can't help but imagine what it must have felt like to be inside the house with Jesus that day. I know intimately and well, as perhaps you do, the hunger to belong to have someone safe and loving to belong to. Regardless of our circumstances, we all know what it's like to yearn for someone who can hold all of who we are and love us still without flinching. That's exactly what Jesus does for the crowds that day. He invites them in, he asks them to stay, and he makes them family. Yes, Jesus divides the house, and that process hurts. But he doesn't divide it to make us homeless. He divides it to rebuild it to make it a more spacious, more welcoming, and more beautiful place. The spirit of God is neither insane nor evil. The spirit completes what he begins. His house will be a house of healing for the whole world. For books this week, Dan reviews Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Of all the many books that Dan's wife had allowed to his three children, none was more popular than the nine-volume series Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder. In that regard, we were not alone. The books have sold 60 million copies, been translated into 45 languages, turned into one of the longest-running shows in television history, and been the subject of numerous adaptations for stage and screen. Carolyn Fraser's literary biography is a meticulous and comprehensive account of the book, books and their author there will be the new gold standard on the subject. The New York Times is only one of many papers to list Prairie Fires as one of the best books of 2017. In addition to the fascinating rags-to-riches life of Wilder and her extended family, two major questions have always loomed over the books. First, are they true? Is it fiction or nonfiction? Are we reading a factual account of a little girl on the Great Plains of the 1800s, or is this a highly edited story that is closer to fiction? This is a complicated question, as Fraser shows, for many reasons, but this much can be said. When the first volume was published in 1932, it was marketed as fiction, not autobiography. Wilder's truth was less a matter of fact than of her memories, feelings, and convictions. Her work was based on facts, but not factual. It was historical fiction, not history. Its chronology and certain incidents and characters were invented, altered, and fictionalized. Second, what role did Wilder's only child, Rose Wilder Lane, play? Did she ghostwrite the books? A large part of Fraser's book explores a deeply complicated and volatile relationship between mother and daughter. Indeed, there is a separate comprehensive biography on Lane, who was a deeply troubled person, a shameless liar and tabloid journalist, impulsive, profligate, perhaps bipolar, and subject to several nervous breakdowns. It's now clear that Lane took Wilder's drafts and polished them with her considerable literary talent and marketing skills. Wilder's Little House books are what Frasier calls a profound act of American mythmaking, about the rugged individualism and self-reliance of the early homesteaders, remembered through an idealized and even romantic lens. The books leave you with a carefully calculated feeling of the pioneer's triumph against all odds. The reality of Wilder's pioneer life was far different. It was his life of unimaginable privation, near-starvation, exhaustion, failure, poor choices, unpaid debts, constant moving and regret. By the time she was 18, Wilder had lived in a dozen homes. Roughly half the pioneer farmers failed. My life has been mainly disappointment, said Pa, late in life. For Wilder herself, her memories as a little girl represented both treasure and torment, both sunshine and shadow. For films this week, Dan reviews Longshot. This 45-minute crime documentary by Netflix Originals is equal parts terrifying and infuriating. On August 12, 2003, Juan Ignacio Catalan was arrested early one morning at his workplace. He was charged with murdering a 16-year-old girl, eventually placed in a supermax prison for the worst criminals, and faced the possibility of a death sentence. But he did not commit the crime. In fact, at the time of the murder, he was at a Dodgers baseball game with his daughter. Not to spoil the movie, but through a series of wildly improbable events, the dogged persistence of defense attorney Todd Milnick And the cooperation of Catalan's girlfriend, the LA Dodgers, HBO, and Nextel, Catalan was able to prove exactly where he was at the time of the murder. The movie draws upon audio and video recordings of Catalan's interrogation by two LAPD detectives and even the trial itself. It's terrifying to think what could have happened to him, and infuriating to witness what the two detectives and the prosecutor did. In the end, Catalan won a $320,000 settlement against the LAPD, and the two detectives were disciplined. And finally, for poetry this week, Mary Oliver's The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do, and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life. You could save. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, June 10th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.